welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast. As we enter the new year, our EdTech team has been discussing what we think will be some of the most common and challenging questions in 2023. Today, our team, Robert Hawkins, Alex Twina-Megisha, Cristobal Cobo, and Maria Barone, explores five questions for 2023. For example, what skills do youth need for employment and what role does technology play to accelerate development of these skills? Or what technologies are the most appropriate and sustainable in fragile and conflict countries? What does hybrid learning mean and what is the most effective balance of virtual and face-to-face engagement to accelerate learning? And how should education systems sustainably finance and procure ed tech? Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast, a conversation on the use of technology and innovation in education globally. My name is Bob Hawkins. I'm the co-global lead for technology and innovation in education here at the World Bank. Today, we're very excited to have an internal discussion amongst our EdTech team. On the call with us is Alex Twino-Magisha, Cristobal Cobo, and Maria Barone. And in this conversation, we are not going to try to predict the future as we start off the new year of 2023, but instead share what we think will be some of the most common and challenging questions from 2023. So let me, let me kick things off with the first question that we want to share with you today and that we think will be high on the agenda of both our colleagues and clients in the space of EdTech. And this is, what skills do youth need for employment? And what role does technology play to accelerate development of these skills? This is a a huge area for us at the World Bank with many projects focusing on this question. And I want to kick off the discussion with you, Alex, if you can kind of reflect a little bit on why you think this will be one of the key questions for the year 2023. Uh, Alex? Oh, thank you, Bob, uh, for that question. Uh, My name is Alex. I'm part of the Global EdTech team that's having this conversation today on some key questions. And the question on skills is absolutely fundamental. I would go so far as to say that we are having a skills crisis at all levels. If you think of kind of the very, very fundamental skills that we go to school for, which is the ability to write and and read, because that's the foundation for all future learning. Before the pandemic, almost half the children in schools, in primary, lower grade primary in low-income countries could not read and comprehend a simple paragraph at age 10. After the pandemic, we estimate, and this is, you know, several World Bank reports, together with some of the other international education actors, we estimate that possibly up to 70% of children in low-income countries cannot read and comprehend a a simple paragraph at age 10. I mean, that's just astounding. And and the figures are probably higher for some of the poorest countries. So that foundation is missing. At the same time, these countries have a very large population of youth. And so the question on everybody's, at least from policymakers we speak to, is we need to do something about these youth. We need to ensure that they have the skills to get employed, all the skills to employ themselves, so entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship skills. But what are some of these kind of skills required for employment today? Well, one of the things that we know for sure is that we live in a digital world. I think if COVID taught us anything, it is that digital skills are no longer a nice to have. They are 
really fundamental to the way we live, work, play, entertain ourselves, communicate, collaborate, and learn, even do business and, and buy goods and services. So th- these are now a, a must-have. And there are several employers who have reported that digital skills are incredibly useful uh, for all sectors of work today. Uh, let me actually point to a, a very recent report from the U.S. This is a, a report by the Bla- Burning Glass Institute on how skills are disrupting work. In that report, which has very, very s- several interesting findings, but one thing really jumped out to me, what they call the key foundational skills for work, right? the ability to set and achieve goals, the ability to manage projects, to make sense of data, to communicate effectively, and teamwork. Right? And that these skills are still in high demand, will continue to be in high demand, and will lead to higher pay and greater mobility. This is what people normally call the 21st century skills. So those are, those are absolutely important. I would say that related to that is kind of social-emotional skills. That's really the foundation. So we have like almost what I would call the prerequisites, which is reading, writing, and arithmetic. And then these very foundational skills, which are kind of 21st century skills and social emotional skills. And then you have a third set, which is more around technical skills. This is where digital skills come into play, vocational vocational skills come into play, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math skills in high demand. The developing world and the youth need these skills. The question is, how quickly can we equip them with these skills? And how can we measure that they are getting this or assess that they are getting these skills? And this is where technology, I think, has a big, a big role to play in increasing access because we're never going to build brick and mortar fast enough. So it's always going to be some sort of hybrid, blended, if not in some cases, purely online training to acquire these skills in a, a continuous life cycle uh, kind of approach, but also as technology gets more powerful, like artificial intelligence, which we, you just talked about, we will, I think, be in a better position to, to assess and measure some, some of these skills. So that's a kind of a quick response to why this is important, why we think we'll continuously get questions around how do we improve skills at all levels, especially skills for employment and what role technology can play. I, I have to point out, of course, that some of these skills are inherently dependent on technology, right? So digital skills, which I just mentioned, but even some of the other 21st century skills are enabled by technology, you know, teamwork, the ability to communicate and collaborate across space, distance, and time. These are all important. Thanks, Alex. And these are skills that are inherently important also to be able to take advantage of remote and hybrid learning, which we will get to in a moment. But I want to open up the the discussion to Chris and Maria as well on what are the most appropriate technologies to facilitate early grade reading? What are the challenges around integration of curriculum and finding time in the curriculum? In recent months, there's been an explosion of the use of AI, particularly in the use of chat GPT, but also the text-to-image programs such as uh, Stable Diffusion and Dolly 2. I'd like to have our colleague Chris introduce himself and share a little bit about why we think this is going to be a critical question for the year ahead. Chris. Hi, well, thank you for the invitation. Yes, very happy to be here. Cristobal Cobos, Senior Education Technology Specialist from the wonderful EdTech team at the World Bank. Well, it has been a long, long winter for the AI, and now we are witnessing a very promising booming, I wouldn't call it spring, maybe it's a transition of a summer, 
And I think it's important for HR to have a look at what is going on. Warning systems can really add value to understand how kids might need extra help. That's a clear example of AI, but also adaptive tutors, adaptive platforms that can offer teaching at the right level or rapid assessment that can provide immediate feedback to the students when they are writing. Are some examples of these different kind of tutoring that can add value to the learning experience. Now, at the same time, there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty in terms of to what extent this will enhance teaching capacities. Some are raising concerns to what extent it could replace some, some skills and competencies from teachers. But I think it's really important to understand this concept of the augmented intelligence, meaning learning to work with these tools and not to replace the human interaction. I think there we have a lot of opportunities for this 2023. Thanks, Chris. We found as a result of COVID that many countries are looking towards the use of this technology for both learning recovery and learning acceleration. And you mentioned early warning systems as a way to identify those that might have, have the grade level skills and are at higher risk of dropping out. Uh, you mentioned the adaptive learning as a way to not just recover some of the skills lost, but to try to kind of accelerate learning as we increasingly face a education crisis around what we call learning poverty, which is the number of 10-year-olds that can read a simple paragraph. And then finally, we see countries using adaptive learning for rapid assessments to try to gauge where students are in the learning process. Maria, have you seen other uses of, of AI in, in your experience? Thank you, Bob. I'm delighted to be here. I'm Maria Barham, a member of the FTEC team as well. And I think this topic is fascinating. And follow up to that great intro by Chris, I think one of the main issues that are, for me is very, very interesting is to see the complexities in implementation. Especially, for example, something like ChatGPG, the data sets that need to be used to train the AI could be protected by copyright, who would be the owner, how we can best use this AI to improve learning outcomes, but at the same time navigating that technology moves faster than regulation and policies. So I wanted to ask Chris his thoughts on this, on the main challenges of implementing AI. Thank you, Maria. If we move away from the gadgets, from the tools, these instruments are bringing a much deeper question, which is what is going to be our relationship with knowledge? We used to assess the proficiency of knowledge when you were able to respond to things. And now we have robots or algorithms which are able to provide really reliable responses. That is a, is a, is a little bit of a, an interesting debate today. How are we going to rethink assessment, not avoiding the use of ChatGPT or this, this sort of tools as we have seen in some education systems so far, but also integrating them in a way that can trigger this difficult but very important question, how did you learn science? Not only give me the final product, but tell me the process that you follow. And this is something that we put the GPT in a way that can be an ally and not an enemy. But I think that has a lot to do with, the, with some of the discussions that probably Paul would lead regarding digital skills and digital pedagogies. And you mentioned other areas on, on copyright that is very fascinating, but I would say, let's start with the proficiencies and the capacities that our teachers require to use these tools as an advice. I think we'll need to think a lot about this issue of, of transparency, of data collected and the algorithms used on that data. I think also the issues of bias, I think also the issues of increasing the data sets that are coming from developing countries so that there's a broader representation. 
And then finally, I think there's a real opportunity, particularly in the area of digital content, when thinking about creation of early grade reading, for instance, is the ability to use programs such as text to image to, to democratize the ability to create news stories. And, and there's an interesting prototype that's been developed by, by colleagues called Fable Diffusion, which we can maybe share in a future episode. And then for the 21st century skills, as you alluded to, Alex, how do you measure these skills? And for each of them, can you provide micro-credentials to recognize maybe skills that are, are difficult to accredit in a formal education system? The question about the assessment is, is a big headache for, for many education systems. We tend to be much more proficient measuring the skills in action than the, only the declaration of those skills. And that has to do with the nature of these capacities that we have that are very contextually relevant. So that really frame a big challenge in terms of highly theoretical approaches to measure those skills might not be entirely relevant. Simulating environments or really actionable interactions with the reality are a much more suitable approach. That's one thing. But the other one is uh, these skills are continuously evolving. So it makes little sense to take measurement once every 24 or 36 months because the alternative approach or complementary approach to design uh, spaces, portfolios, environments where you constantly can show what do you do with your capacities. And I think a lot of value from the employability sector, but also from the self-learning. You show what you have done and then you come back to that and you see how you have improved. I think it's applicable for coding, but it's applicable for social media and also for other uh, high-level uh, critical thinking and selection measures. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Alex and Bob. I think that the matching of skills in any given country is a task that shouldn't be overlooked. With the private sector, with employers, we see many examples in the U.S., in some countries in Latin America, of these type of platforms that map the most demanded skills, sometimes the most demanded jobs, to help the youth actually select what they want to become. But I agree with Chris, this needs to be done in a more effective and rapid manner to actually inform policy and discussion of what should be taught. In addition to that, what we have seen during the pandemic of governments realizing, okay, we need to train teachers fast on digital skills. What we see is also that digital skills, when they are taught effectively, come hand in hand with other set of skills, digital pedagogical skills, and also social emotional skills. Technology, as we say, as part of the EdTech approach, should serve to connect humans. People need to be able to work in groups, to stay connected with families, to have group sessions, and to develop skills as well. There is the possibility of actually using platforms that have some gamification aspects that could play into this. Thanks, Maria. This is an issue that we're actually dealing with and contemplating with a number of partners in Africa, is what are the types of skills that are required for employment in Africa? And there are, there are three aspects that we're, we're looking at. One is the skills that are demanded right now in the job market, uh, and how do you identify what those skills are and whether training institutes are developing youth and students with those skills. The other is what are the skills globally that are emerging that might not be evident at the moment? And how do we think about future skills? And the third is the large number of informal employers in Africa and other parts of the world. And how do you prepare youth to support the informal sector? And what is the role of entrepreneurship? This issue of measurement of skills, and particularly 21st century skills, 
is a particular challenge. I agree with you, Chris, that we need to look at authentic tasks. To develop empathy, you need to show that you can kind of understand what somebody else is going through. If to develop uh, creativity, you need to be able to brainstorm with others and, and think out of the box. But again, what are those authentic tasks that are linked to the specific skills? And then finally, how do you measure those skills? Getting away from the traditional self-report measure into a much more holistic uh, measurement that is linked directly to the, the learning process uh, itself, that maybe combines computer measures, combines uh, self-report, combines peer reports, and expert reports as well. And it's been interesting in discussing with a number of private sector firms that are trying to do this. To your point, Maria, they actually use game mechanics to mainly engage youth to generate more data, to be able to allow the data to guide where skills are, are being developed. And, and again, linked to our prior conversation on our first point on, on the role of AI, I do see this as a, as a burgeoning and emerging area of how we can use AI to more effectively measure some of these skills. I think this was a really good uh, segue as well into some of the challenges in our third question around hybrid learning and the types of skills required for working both in a face-to-face -face environment, but also being able to take advantage of a remote and distance learning environment facilitated by technology. Chris, I wonder if I can come back to you on the third question that we anticipate. What does hybrid learning actually mean, which is a question that our countries are struggling with, and what is the most effective balance between the virtual and the face-to-face to actually accelerate learning. I know you've done some work in, in Saudi Arabia and Peru on this very question. What if we can share some of the insights? Super. Well, this is the million dollar question in terms of what is the right balance. I think the first thing to say is this is by any means something hybrid living has been always one way of combining space, time, and different types of interaction. However, given the pandemic and the constraints that we had because of the sanitary conditions, we had to explore this in a, in a larger scale. So education systems wholly they embrace that. Exploring in many cases to see whether television plus SMS or kids going to some to the school some days were effective or not, and to what extent that was applicable for for very young kids or, or was relevant only for students from secondary. We documented a lot, a lot of those experiences in, in what we call the continuity stories, and we published this report with the OECD where we kind of systematize all these experiments. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned for the after pandemic, but not only in terms of the health crisis, but also climate crisis can also be benefited from the education point of view. If we have hybrid learning experiences where we can have more flexibility in terms of what is the frequency that you have to go to the school and what is the central role they have to play teacher um, in an environment where Students are all learning from their houses a few days, from their homes, and they come back to the school. And that entails a very big challenge in terms of not a technological challenge only, but also a, a reshaping of something that we were discussing a minute ago, reshaping of the pedagogies. Because this teacher will be losing part of the control because the learners will have higher levels of agency. That's not bad, but it's a different game. So hybrid learning is changing the rules of the game. It provides more autonomy more agency of the learner, which is what we need for the lifelong learning. Um, when the, the technology is available, it really can be an opportunity for mitigating gaps 
between urban and rural or between learners with different ages or learners with different disabilities. But at the same time, in a lot of the countries that we work, they have already overcome those technological infrastructure barriers. So it's something that we have to address from the human capacity side in terms of skills, but also in terms of infrastructure. And again, uh, adjusting to see how much the, of the learning can happen in a Zoom. You might remember that we used to talk about the, the Zoom party. That for me is a clear example that very long, lengthy, one too many discussions in a video conference is probably not the best way of keeping the engagement. On one of our prior episodes, we talked about engaging digital content and the importance of rethinking how digital content is developed to make it more like a, a great story, more like a, a fantastic game that students want to be engaged in. And I think we'll see more and more of this as countries think about how to develop appropriate digital content to develop these skills, but also to engage students and to provide students with agency. Marie, I want to come to you in a second on this question of the role of teachers and the changing role of teachers, as well as the continuity stories that Chris mentioned and how we might think about a new round of continuity stories to learn about the impact of the COVID lessons on student learning. But before I come to you, Maria, I wanted to go to Alex, who, when COVID hit, Alex, you, you put together our very first knowledge pack. Now we have 20 some odd knowledge packs as a response to demand from countries around the world on issues from cloud computing to teacher digital skills to remote learning. And you put together the first remote learning knowledge pack. I wonder if you can reflect a little bit from that first knowledge pack you put together on remote learning to where we are now with hybrid and what you expect to be some of the questions and evolving questions in the coming year. Yeah, Bob, I remember that week of 19th of March, 2020. In the very beginning, it was, oh, this is temporary, maybe a week. But then even a week's closure of most schools, if not all schools in several, if not most countries, is a big deal, right? It's a big concern. So we moved very quickly to develop that knowledge pack. One of the first things I did actually was look at internet connectivity in low and middle income countries, realizing that internet penetration was very low, even where there is access, devices become a problem. We created this decision tree on, on how countries can make decisions on which technology to use based on a number of factors, including internet connectivity, including prior experience with technology or technologies. We really looked at education TV. We, we dug up a lot of the case studies that have been done over several decades on the impact of education on TV and radio, on e-learning, right? I think that was very well received. One of our most downloaded packs at that time, we had Suddenly, some many hits, but I also feel we had some misses. We saw more and more low-income countries take up education, TV, and radio. I mean, the continuity stories that Chris and Maria were involved in putting together. Very powerful accounting of what happened in several countries and what worked and what didn't work. One of the challenges, obviously, with media like TV and radio is this feedback loop, right? You're reaching the students, but are you sure that the students are actually there listening and learning? We knew that there would be challenges with internet access and e-learning skills and connectivity issues. But I think within six months, every country had an e-learning portal, which, which is amazing. And they were working through content. It very quickly became clear that you needed to use a multimodal approach. 
It also became very clear that the home environment was important. The parents were particularly important, but that teachers still had a critical role to play. I think the miss, when I reflect on this, is we didn't do more work around mobile. Because if there was one technology that was widely available in low- and middle-income countries, it was mobile technology, specifically very basic or feature phone mobiles. Now, not to say that countries didn't try that. We had great case studies out of places like Botswana, right? I wrote a kind of an internal post saying WhatsApp is probably the unsung hero of COVID learning. Because it was used to organize teachers, to connect teachers to students, to answer questions from parents. We did actually produce a knowledge pack on the use of mobile technology, but I feel like more could have been done. So looking forward, there are some very, very encouraging developments. Almost every country that I know is trying to mainstream the investments made during COVID, which is one of the worries, right? Countries actually continue to invest. First of all, the pandemic is not completely over. There might be another pandemic. This thing could take a different turn. Climate change is a very big issue. So being prepared and this realization that learning needs to take place anywhere, anytime, and that the current education model actually is not flexible enough or responsive enough both to school closures, but also to the way children learn and where they learn and how they learn. I think that's a very powerful outcome of the COVID time. The future is very interesting. With new technologies like adaptive learning, personalized learning becoming further developed, I think the future is very, very exciting around education delivery. You know, the concept of leapfrogging, right? Developing countries or, or those that have, don't have a vested investment in legacy systems, Invested investment could be, you know, in skills and time and money and all this, have the ability to to go to the latest, newest thing. And I always struggle with that concept of leapfrogging when it comes to, oh, let's use low tech. Because I, I believe that some of the cutting edge stuff, you know, like adaptive learning is a very good example, right? Actually would have outsized benefits in terms of personalization of learning for students from poor families or, or, or poor countries. As our colleague Mike likes to say, the best technology is the one you already have. But at the same time, I, I, I struggle with squaring it with the concept of leapfrogging. I actually think that these countries would benefit most from high tech. Obviously, there are limitations. There's no connectivity. Connectivity is very expensive, which I'm glad to say many countries are now looking at. And we have many more options, including some very promising and viable satellite stuff uh, to fill in the gaps where there's no fiber, expanding 3G, 4G, and soon to come 5G. There's a GSMA report for Africa, population covered versus usage. There is actually a, the usage gap is as big, if not bigger than the coverage gap, i.e. people are living in areas with connectivity, but are not connected, right? And there are many reasons for ability, devices, uh, skills, I think is a big one. I think we need to focus on that. That kind of comes to kind of the innovative financing, right? Because most, most often everyone looks to the Ministry of Education for financing. Um, but I think this is a classic case where we need to maximize financing. Uh, the money you have can go much further, but also there are alternative sources of funding that you, that you can tap in. And we are doing some work on financing because it's a big one. I mean, the Ministry of Education, the truth of the matter is just simply don't have the money. But then the Ministry of ICT, for instance, 
is responsible for connectivity, has projects, has money, and that's their mandate. And so this partnership and what we always talk about, you know, the ecosystem and the ability to collaborate, deeper engagement of the private sector. We saw some of this during COVID, zero rating of websites. We should be looking at more sustainable win-win investments between the private sector and the public sector or, or PPPs. Um, uh, so the innovative financing thing, I'm always astounded at how much money is sitting in universal access funds. Many countries have this universal access or, or universal service funds. And um, I think some reports I've seen say there's billions of dollars sitting in those funds. Some countries are putting them to good use uh, around technology for education and for other social sectors. But I think more can be done. So thinking more broadly about additional sources of funding, but also how to make the current funding go further by focusing on the right stuff, by focusing on evidence, by putting teachers first. You know, the five principles that we have, uh, I think, would be important. Well, that's an excellent point. I think what we're seeing as a result of COVID are, are countries looking at ways in which to leverage those investments to build more resilient education systems. And we're seeing that play out after COVID in countries like Ukraine that are dealing with conflict, as well as Afghanistan, where girls are not able to access formal education institutions. This is actually a good transition to our fourth question, which in addition to the questions that were asked around the role of AI, the appropriate skills and the role of technology in developing skills, and this question on what is hybrid. The fourth question being what technologies are most appropriate and sustainable in fragile and conflict countries. So I want to come to you, Maria, on this question, as well as any reflections you have on the questions I posed before around the role of teachers and the effectiveness of some of these hybrid remote models for improving, accelerating student learning. I think this is a perfect follow-up question because when Alex was enumerating why, and also Chris and yourself, why it's important to think about hybrid, blended, open school models still now, even after the pandemic, after we're living in a post-pandemic world, I think the key word was mentioned by everyone. And the key word is flexibility. I think that settings of fragility, conflict, and violence, what we call in the bank FCB, have many challenges that actually can benefit from the flexibility of this type of delivery model. So they have, for example, lack of teachers, they have low connectivity, they have lack of infrastructure, they have lack of accessible learning materials. And also, they also face something that was, I mean, I would say even worse than that what happened during the pandemic, that the well-being of children, of parents, and of teachers is, is being impacted by the situation itself. And technology can help also with this. So in terms of access, uh, Chris has mentioned hybrid learning. We have mentioned remote learning and the first work that we did with the knowledge packs as well. Open schooling approaches can be useful as well. This is in a way to expand the access to, to education in places where teachers cannot go and also to enhance access to quality education. We can enhance the effect of a good teacher. In terms of content, technology can give access to online resources and digital libraries. But in addition to this, there is a program, and we did a podcast about this program before, Read at Home, 
that uses technology actually to distribute books to to children, also in, in, in FCB settings. In terms of also delivery, technology can also support teacher professional development and also can support informal communities of teachers that can use very low-tech solutions such as WhatsApp group, Telegram groups, Facebook groups, or any type of platform they want to use to be connected. Um, and in addition to this, so Alex and I wrote a blog a couple of years ago now about how to use technology to enhance well-being of students and also teachers and text messages and nudges. So text messages that aim to introduce some behavioral changes and to motivate the student and teachers are also especially relevant for XV settings. Um, and I want to go back also to the question on Bob on the continuity stories. So the continuity stories capture the, I would say the first responses of many countries after COVID-19. They read sometimes like war stories. And I think that systems and countries move extremely fast. As Alice was saying, like platforms were out, out of nowhere. And I think building on this is important, especially for a context like FCB, for climate change, even countries that have very rural areas where kids had to travel even more than two, three hours to just reach the school. I think those are important issues that technology can help solve in terms of FCB, but also other settings. But the continuity stories highlight many lessons of what worked, what didn't, the effectiveness of some of the interventions. There are over 50 stories that were compiled. I think we could include maybe a link to that in the description of, of this podcast, because I think because they represent all the regions and they are focused on different topics, for example, teachers, TV, radio, mobile technology to support learning, the continuity of learning during the pandemic. And in addition to that, a lot of them focus on the role of the teacher and how teachers had to go from being used to a model of delivery that was just in person to having to use many different resources, including platforms, including maybe having to complement a TV lesson or a radio lesson. And that was not easy. In many cases, and what has emerged from the pandemic are some good cases of supporting teachers, maybe through help desk, maybe through informal networks and many other ways. One of the areas that we're exploring with our colleagues working in fragile conflict environments is the sources of, of innovation and new ideas that are coming out through necessity because there aren't any formal systems in place. And part of our advice has been, let's see how we can surface these innovations, identify what's happening what students, teachers, parents, principals are already doing to deal with the crisis, what technology they're using, and how we can strengthen and scale some of these existing innovations. We often talk about the role of technology as a Trojan horse, that I think as a result of COVID, some of the areas that you mentioned, Maria, have opened up space in policy dialogues that were were previously difficult to deal with, whether it's changes in the curriculum, whether it's changes in assessment systems, or, or changes in the role of teachers. Chris, I wonder if you, if you have any reflections on some of these innovations and how we see 
the delivery of education in FCV environments, not needing to replicate what's done in the formal system, but to do things that maybe otherwise were not possible or brand new. We have these discussions regularly on the team. and We always navigate between what are trends that can offer new opportunities and at the same time, how to be sure that those options don't build new walls between the ones who already have the infrastructure and those who don't. So I think the big challenge we have is to explore solutions that are already domesticated, if I can use that word, in environments where there, there's not a wealth of technology. We usually refer to that as low-tech. Low-tech doesn't mean bad technology. It might require not having the cutting-edge device or might require not having um, a very strong network or maybe not having regular network or connectivity, but that um, in a way can be used by the communities. Today we have observed uh, in the continuity stories and in other cases, our wealth of explorations extremely innovative to bring connectivity to the schools. In some cases in Peru, we saw a project to bring connectivity through a modem that were delivered in the backpack of the teachers. In the U.S., we saw that in, in school buses. In other places, connectivity are sometimes available, sometimes not. But interestingly, uh, and let me connect with the very first question, interestingly, a very, very cutting-edge technology, like the chat GPT, which is cutting-edge today, is extremely friendly in low-tech environments because it's simply a text, right? So you don't need a strong computer. You don't need to have strong amount of computer skills. If you have a device, even if it's old, and you have access to this tool, you can be benefited out of it. And for me, the lesson here is less think in technologies that don't require a lot of hardware, a lot of skills, that that can be useful and to, in order to benefit uh, the learners. Because I believe we are not in the technology per se business, we are in the learning business. So I think that question should drive always our, our exploration. What's emerging through the prompts that ChatGPT and, and other systems like Stable Diffusion require is the ability to ask the right questions, looking very critically at the answer that's that's given. I'm worried that students will use this as a substitute for writing, because I do think that writing is a reflection of thinking. And in order to think well, you need to write well. But by the same token, I think it's an incredible tool for expanding the way you think and the way you write and making connections in ways that you as a human have not thought about and as a machine can help you make connections and, and see connections between disparate fields, I think at the end of the day is, is really the definition of creativity, of putting something new together through fields that, that exist. I want to move on to our last question for 2023, which is focused on this question about where the, the rubber hits the road. Many of our, our ministries looking at use of technology, the key question for these education systems is how do they sustainably finance and procure ed tech? And I'd like to come back to you, Alex, on kind of the issues that you've raised around the importance of, of mobile, the issues that Chris has raised around some of the, the simplified use of a, of a tool like ChatGPT that, that maybe doesn't require a high level of equipment, as, as well as these challenges that we face around the increased need to think about recurrent costs in budgets as opposed to just capital expenditures. The same challenges we have in, in ed tech can be said for education in general. 
if kids are in school, why are they not learning? If books have been distributed, why are they not being used? Is the stuff we are providing of really of practical use? When it comes to education technology and all the pieces that need to come together to make education technology useful, the question is, if all this is known, why don't more and more countries do the stuff that, that are required? It's something that I continuously reflect on. The challenge of access to connectivity, but, but not using the connectivity is very similar to our challenge of access to education, but not learning. And this was actually one of the issues that, that emerged from COVID was the opening of a new access divide, which gets to the issue of, of, of hybrid, as well as the appropriate pedagogies and skills to be able to facilitate and deliver quality education in a remote environment. And your point on the ecosystem is right on. And it's a huge challenge, both in terms of the culture of ministries of education and the public sector vis-a-vis -vis the private sector, as well as capacities to coordinate. But, but also the financing is, is one side of looking at ways in which to facilitate effective private-public partnerships, ideas such as social impact bonds, ideas such as results-based financing, which I think has lots of promise for digital and online learning, where you can kind of measure either progress or learning and be able to disperse based on those results. But the other challenge is, is around procurement and how ministries of education can effectively procure smaller scale innovations that are coming from smaller startup companies. This is a huge challenge because many ministries don't want to take the risk on unknown technologies, unknown firms, and also have a very difficult time doing effective small scale procurement. The Ministry of Education might not be the only player to address all the problems that EdTech may have. Connectivity usually goes in other partners uh, within the public sector. The same thing with the devices and other capacities that I think we have to be sure that the ministers are not alone trying to overcome all the challenges that we have described. I think we need to come back uh, December this year and see how these reflections have played out because I... I really think it will be interesting to follow up on this conversation. Right now, all of us have mentioned ChatGPT at some point. I would like to know where is that conversation at in December. In terms of additional reflections, for me, is to say something that probably is, is, is something that we don't say enough in, in the world of education, that in the act of education, it's not only the learner who, who learns, but also the teacher. And I think this is Paulo Freire, if I'm not mistaken, but I think Chris will correct me because he's very familiar with his work. And I think this should play into what we're discussing as well. Educators and innovators, futurists, everyone is learning as part of this process. So I think it would be important to follow up on that. And I think at the end of the day, education, as our director Jaime Saavedra likes to say, is, is ultimately a, a social endeavor. And, and finding ways not just to provide books and teachers and access to a physical building, but how to inspire, motivate, develop a belief that students can do more than they think they can, perseverance, creativity. I think these are the types of things that we need to focus on. But uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. We should do more of these, these hallway discussions, as we say. And I think this one was an, uh, was an excellent and timely one for us to think about the year ahead and as Maria says, I'm looking forward to December where we can reflect on kind of how these questions have actually played out. So thanks again to everybody and have a great weekend. Cheers.